see you. Guten Abend. Uh, uh, in the year that led up to Sam's arrival, uh, I was here uh, every Sunday night and, and uh, got to know uh, many of you quite well. And then that changed when S- uh, Sam arrived. So I'm realizing that I see some of you only when I'm here at the evening service. And it's good to see you again. Uh, Sam, as many of you know, has been giving a sermon series at this uh, evening worship service on uh, minor characters of the Bible, and when he suggested that I take part in the series, I uh, jumped at the chance. Uh, The only uh, minor character left in the series uh, was the wife of Pontius Pilate, and my first thought was, why, that's a really minor character. Uh, And as it turns out, Sam was reluctant to give that one up. He was hoping to preach this, and as I discovered, uh, this actually is a very interesting uh, uh, person. Uh, The Bible, as you know, uh, does not give her a name, Uh, uh, and that is not so unusual, uh, as it turns out. Lots of people in the Gospels are are never named, and and in fact, in some ways, a name is unusual. Uh, But from sources, uh, from other sources, we know that Pilate's wife uh, was known as Claudia Procula, uh, a granddaughter. This w- was maybe my most interesting discovery in the research I did on this sermon. Uh, the granddaughter of uh, Caesar Augustus. Did you know that? No. Uh, it becomes more interesting as the story goes along. Uh, frankly, a- as I said, I did not know that until I prepared for the sermon. Uh, her appearance in the Bible is relatively brief, only 38 words in the English translation uh, of, of the Bible. And uh, even though her role is not large, down through the centuries, she has captured the imagination of uh, artists and poets, uh, novelists, and more recently, uh, film directors. Uh, Charlotte Bronte, just to give you uh, a couple of examples, uh, was one of the famous Bronte sisters. And who doesn't remember novels like Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre? I read them all the time, not really, but... uh, uh, well, Charlotte Bronte wrote a relatively well-known uh, poem in 1846 called Pilate's Wife's Dream. Right? And we will get to the dream in a moment because that, after all, is how she is remembered in Scripture. And then uh, last but not least, although I, I could give lots of other examples, uh, Pilate's Wife also appears in Mel Gibson's 2004 movie, the, the Passion of the Christ. So even though she makes this very brief appearance in, in Scripture, she nevertheless made quite an impression on believers down through the centuries. And in the time I have tonight, I want to explore why that is. Uh, what is it about this woman uh, that makes us uh, remember her and take notice of her? Now, not to keep you in suspense, Pilate's wife, and is it okay if I start to call her Procula uh, since we know uh, her name? Uh, Procula uh, tried to save Jesus' life with a direct appeal to her husband, uh, the governor. And you could argue, and I'm going to make this argument, that Procula did more than anyone else in the story uh, to intervene to save Jesus' life, uh, which is a pretty good way to be remembered, I think. Uh, Of course, Peter uh, came to the Garden of Gethsemane armed with a sword, and uh, I think... uh, I mean, scholars guess that a fair number of the disciples carried swords all the time. I mean, they were always ready for the, the uprising that uh, they dreamed about. Uh, and, and Peter, because he had the sword with him, uh, as Jesus uh, was about to be arrested, lopped off the ear of uh, uh, one of the soldiers. And maybe you remember at that point that Jesus told Peter to put the sword away and he healed 
the, the, the soldier's ear. But everyone else, or just about everyone else, ran away at the first sign of trouble. Um, leaving Jesus to endure the trial and, and the terrible beating and the crucifixion on his own. There's a wonderful verse or two in, in Mark's Gospel uh, where a young man is in the garden with Jesus at the time of his arrest and, and he runs away. And the, the soldiers reach out to grab his uh, linen cloth and, and uh, somehow that was all they got. They did not get him, but they got the linen cloth and as the story puts it, he ran away naked. And tradition has it that that young man was Mark uh, himself. Uh, talk, I mean, talk about minor characters of the Bible. You could uh, include him next time. Well, getting back to Peter, let's give him his due here. He did not run away. Uh, in addition to drawing his sword, he followed at a distance to the courtyard of uh, Caiaphas, the high priest. But I, I think you know what happened there. He suddenly lost the courage that he had earlier in the night and said three different times that he had no idea who Jesus was. You know, never laid eyes on the man. And so the name Peter and the word betrayal uh, are now synonymous in the minds of uh, most Western people. Maybe it would be better if Peter had run away uh, with the rest of them. And then, of course, Jesus' mother apparently stayed with him uh, throughout. Uh, John's Gospel record that records that Mary and the uh, beloved disciple w- were there at the crucifixion to the end. But, and, and, and this is my point, the story makes clear that most of Jesus' followers simply ran away out of fear. Uh, there isn't a single uh, hero among his followers, not one. So that leaves Procula as the one and only person who tried. Uh, let's spend a few minutes tonight trying to understand what motivated her and, and why this Gentile woman, there's an interesting fact, why this Gentile woman, granddaughter of the emperor, put her convictions on the line, and why 20 centuries later we still mention her every single time we read the Passion story. Uh, Pilate was the fifth uh, Roman governor or prefect of Judea, probably the best known of those who served in this position. Uh, I think it's safe to say that this uh, region was not the most desirable one in the empire. Uh, An accurate way to put it would be that careers went to die in Judea. It was a, a thankless outpost. Uh, early in the fourth century, uh, first century, the, the Jews, as I think you know, were a restless bunch. Uh, most conquered people quickly discovered that uh, the Romans wanted everyone to be happy. Uh, hard to believe, maybe, but true. Just swear allegiance to Rome, make a few animal sacrifices, pay some taxes, and so forth, and well, life was pretty good. Uh, the Jews, though, would have none of that, and so Judea... It was always a, a, a restless and contentious place to, to live. Uh, there was always the, the threat of an uprising in the air. Now here's an interesting fact, and as we'll see, it turns out to be uh, an important fact as well. The Roman governor did not live in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I mean, why would you? Uh, Jerusalem uh, means a great deal to us today, and, and that's mostly for the spiritual reasons we attach to it. But in the first century, it was not the most attractive city in the empire. Uh, Maybe at the time of King Solomon, after that first glorious temple uh, was built, uh, maybe then it was a beautiful capital city, but in the first century, the Roman governor preferred to live in Caesarea Philippi, uh, which was a a lovely port city on the Mediterranean. And if you've been there, then you've walked through the ruins of the governor's home. And it's on the beach, and it looks out to the sea, and the sunsets must have been magnificent. Uh, 
but at least once a year, around the time of Passover, the governor and his wife set out for uh, Jerusalem. And with so many people in town, and with so much anti-Roman feeling in the air, uh, it was best, for obvious reasons, for the governor and some of his uh, men, his soldiers, to be a visible presence in the city. The governor of, uh, of Judea typically commanded a force of about 3,000 to 5,000 men. I, I don't know how many traveled with him to Jerusalem, uh, but probably enough to make a statement uh, about his power. Uh, as a small but important footnote in the story, the, the procession of the governor into Jerusalem must have been quite a parade. Uh, and typically it drew quite a crowd. People wanted to catch a glimpse. He was a celebrity, maybe a minor one, but he was all they had. Uh, the governor entered the city on a beautiful horse with this large contingent of, of soldiers. Uh, and in contrast to that, Jesus entered the city at about the same time, Passover week, riding a donkey, not anybody's idea of a beautiful animal. His followers were noisy, sure. Uh, they were all uh, shouting Hosanna and making uh, a lot of noise, waving palm branches. Uh, but the contrast could not have been more striking. Right, uh, Early readers of the Gospels, I'm guessing, would have imagined uh, this contrast, and we are supposed to imagine it uh, as well. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' entry. Now, I think it's interesting that Procula uh, traveled with her husband to Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, she, I stood in her living room, right, and, or what's left of it, and it, it's a beautiful spot. And, and, and satellite photos suggest that the harbor, which was entirely designed and built by Roman engineers, uh, was magnificent. It was one of the wonders, architectural engineering wonders of the first century world uh, since there were, was no natural port uh, at this site. But according to legend, uh, Pilate and Procula were quite close, had a, a close uh, relationship. According to other sources, she traveled with her husband most of the time. And I don't know if that was common, but the sources I found seemed to uh, think that it was unusual. She and her husband were close. According to the Gospel of uh, Nicodemus, one of the apocryphal Gospels, which was written around 325 uh, A.D., Procula was a, a convert to Judaism. And uh, what this means is that she was like the Ethiopian eunuch in, in Acts chapter 8. They and others like them were known as God-fearers, a, a technical term. And uh, they were outsiders who, to their credit, were spiritual seekers and who found their way to Judaism. Uh, they would never be fully accepted as Jews, but they were nevertheless drawn to the God of Israel. Uh, and I think that's interesting, too. Uh, don't, don't you? Uh, here we have the wife of a Roman governor who found herself drawn spiritually to something different from the religion of Rome. Right? And, and that in itself would have been a courageous position uh, for a woman in her position to take. Uh, the granddaughter of the emperor <laughs> embraced a different religion. Uh, but it was not uh, unique according to the book of Acts. Uh, there were other women of high social status who were also drawn uh, uh, to faith first in the God of Israel and then uh, to his son, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, these women, and I think this is a fair conclusion, these women were, uh, very much wanted something more than uh, Roman religion offered, uh, which was uh, kind of a blend of everything. Uh, something about the God of Israel seemed to them real and, 
and, and genuine and substantial. And unlike Roman uh, religion, which no one took seriously, except maybe the, the emperor, uh, the, the, the religion of the the, that the Jews offered uh, offered something that they needed and wanted. So we come to this Passover week, 33 AD approximately, and Jesus is arrested by Jewish authorities. He's, he's tried uh, uh, under their law. Remember the scene before the Sanhedrin. And, and, and then he's turned over to the Romans. And l- let me just say here what uh, most of you probably already know. Uh, the Romans executed people all the time. And, and crucifixion was one of their favorite methods of execution, especially for slaves and people of low social status. And, and not only did the Romans crucify people all the time, sometimes they did it to many, many people at the same time. And then uh, they would leave their bodies up on uh, their crosses for days. Uh, a Roman execution was not only public, it was unavoidable. Uh, crucifixions occurred where everyone could see them, and of course it was awful and it was excruciating for, for the person being uh, executed, but also for people who had to walk by. Uh, whatever was troubling Procula, uh, I, I'm guessing it was not the idea of uh, execution itself or, or even the idea of a crucifixion. She may not have liked it, right? but this was a part of her world. Uh, according to Matthew's Gospel, and I'm, I'm going to leave out the whole story of Barabbas here because we don't have time to deal with it tonight, but uh, Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat in full view of a, a crowd of Uh, of people and his wife sent word to him and the message was have nothing to do with that innocent man for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him now generally speaking I I mean I've never had much sympathy for Pilate Uh, he may truly have been torn you know experiencing inner turmoil over this over what to do with Jesus but I have never thought so my guess is that his mind was made up. He wanted this over as quickly as possible and with as little fanfare as possible. He just wanted it to be behind him. But now comes this word from his wife, someone uh, he trusts. And if he's like most other men I know, she may have been the only person he really trusted and confided in. Uh, however you look at the story, what Procula did was a courageous thing to do. To tell your husband, the, the Roman governor of Judea, in the middle of an extremely stressful day, that he is about to execute an innocent man. You know, in terms of storytelling, these words here really only serve to remind the readers that, of course, Jesus is innocent. I mean, we all know that, and, and these words suggest that maybe some other people knew that. What was happening was a terrible miscarriage of justice. Right? An, an innocent man was being condemned to die. It's awful. And so at one level, that's the role she plays in the story. She speaks the truth. So I, I, what I want to do is go a little bit deeper, and, and, and let's imagine, if we can, what this woman, what Procula was really doing. Uh, w- what I very much want you to see tonight is her example. Right? She used her voice. She used her unique position as the governor's wife. She used her presence in Jerusalem and her embrace of Judaism to save Jesus' life. She used what she had. Uh, We sometimes think that we don't have much power. We sometimes think that our uh, voices do not count for much. Am I right about that? 
I mean, who, who would listen to me anyway? I think I'll just be quiet, because who would listen? We sometimes think that the government uh, or any power structure in our lives is so large and, and, and so powerful that we, we would never be hurt. And so it, why should we even try? Let, I mean, we just keep our mouths closed because better to be silent than to bring unwanted attention our way. But courage, and I want you to see this, uh, courage doesn't look at life that way. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish uh, philosopher and theologian and who didn't have very many positive things to say about the state church in Denmark, uh, Soren Kierkegaard reflects on the meaning of courage and he says, uh, to dare, uh, in, in other words, to be courageous is to lose one's footing momentarily, to not dare, to not be courageous is to lose oneself. And I think what he means is, is that if we do not speak in those situations, if we keep our mouths shut, when we know something to be the truth, if we assume that our voices mean nothing in the face of a great power, then we lose something of ourselves. We lose our humanity. To put it another way, cowardice robs us of something essential. We need to speak. Not because anything we say will change a horrible situation. We need to speak because we are human beings. And, and children of God, and, and called to a life worthy of the one who loves us. We need to speak because, as Jesus puts it in another story, if we're silent, the stones are going to cry out. There are times in our lives, situations in which we find ourselves, when silence is as bad or maybe worse than, than Peter's betrayal. I mean, being silent doesn't make us better. In many ways, I think it makes us worse. We could have spoken, we could have opened our mouths, but oh, we, oh, we chose to be silent. According to tradition, as some of you know, Procula became a Christian. And the Greek church has made her a saint, someone they hold up as a model of, of Christian living. And after spending time with this story, these 38 words, I, I think I understand why they made her a saint. Her courage inspires me. I feel convicted when I read this story. And I am determined to be silent no more.